This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Quantitative finance is a segment of investment that uses mathematical and statistical methods to analyze opportunities across a range of asset classes, but it has an importance that is followed closely by a growing community right now. Our next guest, part of that, Chris Gacy, is an adjunct full professor of finance at the Wharton School. He's actually going to be uh, uh, one of the leads on an upcoming Jacobs Levy Center conference in New York City on September the 16th, titled Frontiers in Quantitative Finance. And he joins us to talk a little bit about it. Chris, a pleasure to have you with us for a few moments. Dan, good to be with you. Good morning. Good morning. So, obviously, for a lot of people, the, the idea, the concept of, of quantitative finance is probably one that is is relatively new to them. If you can, put it in a little perspective as to uh, what role it plays right now and, and the importance you believe it has in terms of looking at various elements of investing as we move forward. Yeah, that, thanks, Dan. It, you know, it conjures uh, images of people with uh, beanies and pocket protectors, I suppose. Uh, but, you know, information is the new currency and understanding massive amounts of information, um, you know, including, for example, the implications of today's CPI numbers on asset classes, on stocks, bonds, other assets, um, is challenging. And it's made, I think, more understandable by the use of models and by finding ways to understand the implications for the data uh, and, and changes in the data and bringing it back to what we know uh, using those, those models. And, you know, ultimately, if information is a currency, then there's really no non-quant if you think about it broadly. So there are a variety of, of areas that we can touch on with, with this. Let me start with ESG because there's, you know, a, a growing push around ESG investing right now. There are people that are on both sides of this debate, the, you know, the, the people that believe it's very important to invest in the ESG. There are others that, you know, have concerns on this. How might quantitative finance play a role in that thought process? Right. Well, at the end of the day, the question is, what is ESG? So definitionally, uh, it's about both um, rating and measurement of environmental, social and governance um, characteristics, information about investments, about firms, about enterprise. And that's true both in public and private markets. Um, ESG is kind of a historical way of thinking uh, about, you know, what you might call non-pecuniary considerations and in investments. But uh, the underlying uh, movement behind ESG has been strong, uh, as you described, in a number of, you know, you know really a dec- more than a decade and a half. Uh, yeah. But And it goes way back, by the way. I mean, this is not new in some sense. It goes all the way back to Sumerian times. So, you know, we see information on what might be called ESG, you know, 3000 BCE or something. Uh, but uh, today uh, it's arisen uh, both uh, politically as a hot button topic um, and also as uh, a way that information and models might uh, be applied, used, uh, and, in, and our knowledge of firms might be uh, made better. So, you know, there's no way to disconnect it, really, from, uh, from politics, from, from religion, from, uh, from those ideas. But, uh, you know, the underlying idea behind ESG today is that it might matter for stakeholders, of course, uh, stockholders, either as a cost or as a benefit, but also other stakeholders like employees and the community and even the environment. So for quantitative finance, the question is, uh, what are the characteristics of ESG investments? 
what are the characteristics of stakeholders who are relevant? Um, and are we really um, hurting investors or are there ways to be additive using the data in the models? And I think there are answers on both sides, but there is, yeah. you know, there's, there's, there's a surprising amount of constructive evidence as well as uh, concern. You also mentioned to me, we were trading emails uh, about uh, talking here today, and you mentioned also just kind of the analysis of earnings calls uh, and the transcripts and what is said by the leaders of companies in these earnings calls and how quantitative analysis can play a role here. Well, that's right. Again, you know, I think if you're a corporate executive, you know the machines are, are listening. Uh, and they're listening both in real time and ex post. And, you know, the woo-woo factor there, so to speak, is that uh, the choices of words that executives make when they, uh, you know, either have a prepared section or are answering, um, uh, you know, to, to analyst remarks um, uh, give uh, a kind of sense of uh, things like their personalities uh, and how, what their choices of words are and how what they say relates back to both risk and reward uh, for companies. Uh, and at our center, the Jacobs Levy Center, which you kindly mentioned, uh, we've had a number of papers uh, you know, by our faculty and our PhD students over the years that analyze earnings calls um, by way of understanding the positive or negative sentiment. Uh, you know, it's not just mm -hmm. the message, it's the massage, right? So uh, there are um, uh, ways to analyze both, again, with, with respect to prepared marks and and, and um, uh, ongoing discussions that go to the next level of, of depth and try to tease out systematic and idiosyncratic components of that um, important information. Uh, now, of course, it's a little bit of game theory there because, you know, corporate executives know the machines are listening, so they might have tempered the way they describe uh, company activities and progress and challenges. But uh, the dimension reduction, the extraction of detail, uh, both yeah. systematically and idiosyncratically, is really um, the next generation of quant finance. So you mentioned uh, when we started about the, the, the role that quantitative analysis can play in, in terms of days like this where you have a high CPI report. We know inflation is playing a, a significant role and, and what that can mean for you know the thought process around investing in this period of time. The old line, and you related this and brought back a lot of stories as well, is when you saw this type of activity on Wall Street, it was jump into gold. You know, do that real quick, and that'll preserve, you know, some of your gains. But that isn't always the case in this day and age. Well, well, that's right. Gold is a complicated uh, investment, right? Uh, it's hard to see where the cash flows are coming from. I mean, there are royalty plays you can have, but generally speaking, it, it's it's hard to value in the sense that it doesn't produce cash flows necessarily. Uh, and it's been an, it, it's been a bit, bit of a blunt tool uh, against inflation. Of course, inflation quantitatively comes from a bunch of sources, right? There's headline, there's core, there's PCE, uh, there's urban, uh, there's inflation expectations, there are shocks expectations. I mean, it really is, you know, you, know, you need kind of a, maybe even a quant lens to, 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 to settle uh, exactly what, you know, we're really talking about. Uh, but if you look back at other strategies, what the field of quant finance has shown is that there are a significant number of strategies that are both good and bad. I mean, the challenging areas of investing, if you have unexpected inflation or just high, you know, high running inflation ahead of expectations, consumer durables is tough. Uh, long, year, long duration treasuries is tough. Even high yield is tough. Uh, oh, even if yields are higher than you see in the in the treasury markets, um, uh, other areas trend following 
uh, and that's in, uh, of course, commodities, you know, energies and industrials and, 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 and precious metals. That's not necessarily just holding gold. That's looking at uh, quantitative characteristics of them have been diversifying and historically produced a premium uh, in, in, in equities, uh, quality, uh, high quality versus low quality. Uh, has outperformed during inflation periods and profitability. And, and as you well know, like today, value has generally outperformed growth in inflationary time periods. These are all what we call quant factors that, you know, if you look at the market today, you might say, well, it's a broad sell-off. Yeah, but that's not tr- exactly true if you look at large cap growth versus uh, large cap value or small cap value. There's a you know, at least a 200 basis point, as, as of the last time I looked this morning, a 200 basis point differential. And, mm-hmm. and that has to do with, you know, uh, things like, you know, I've heard you talk about interest rates, uh, long duration cash flows impacting values in a leveraged way. These are quantitative concepts. And, you know, all, all quant is is a tool, really, but it reduces yeah. dimensionality, allows us to carve up the, what we think and hope are uh, more reliable effects versus less reliable effects. I mentioned the conference you have coming up at the end of the week. I'll give you the floor to to talk about uh, uh, the importance of doing a conference like this and, and what will occur coming up at the end of the week. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Well, we're super excited because this is the first in-person quant conference we've had in a number of years. Uh, it's centered around momentum, and it's honoring, as we do every two years on a normal schedule, work of Jagadish and Titman. And if you're in quant finance, you know those are – uh, figureheads for the momentum effect, the, the idea that uh, a price continuation, um, a strong price continuation versus weak price continuation actually produces a future return. It sounds like, you know, academic efficient markets wouldn't allow that. And there's, of course, a debate there about whether, you know, high momentum versus low momentum stocks uh, have a premium because of uh, the unraveling of irrational expectations of investors or whether there's truly risk there. But I can tell you something remarkable about it. Um, high momentum, the spread between high momentum stocks and low momentum stocks historically has been stronger in a realized sense than the spread between stocks and bonds. So it's mm-hmm. this amazing effect. We don't really have great models for it, but you'll hear uh, at the conference, which, by the way, is open for on-site registration. I feel like I'm talking my book here. But, uh, you know, the question is, um, is, does this have to do with time of day effects? Uh, does it have to do with industry effects? Uh, is it easy, you know? For retail investors like my mother-in-law to do it, or should they be hiring uh, active managers, or should they be taking a passive approach to it? Um, uh, the, the conference centers on this, and uh, really our center, uh, the Jacobs Levy Center, uh, straddles uh, or, or lives in the plenum between practice and theory. So it's an academic conference, but there are a lot of folks who, and alumni, by the way, who come and enjoy the conference and kind of get yeah. booted up on what the latest papers are saying. Chris, we wish you all the best with that uh, at the end of the week, and thanks for a couple of minutes today. Dan, great to talk with you. Thank you. Chris Gacy, who is uh, adjunct full professor of finance at the Wharton School. Busy two hours for us on Wharton Business Daily. Today, we started out the show talking about the inflation rate, which rose again in the month of August, 8.3% year over year. Gina Smilik of the New York Times covering that story for their paper talked with us about what this means in a variety of fronts but most specifically we talked with her about what this means for the state of the rental market we have seen a situation where there just is not enough housing supply in this country and particularly in the rental market and we've seen really robust demand for rental units 
I think the other side of the situation here is actually ability to pay. You know, a lot of housing market experts will tell you that rent prices are, you know, mapped very neatly onto wage rates. So when people have more money in their pockets, they tend to be more capable of paying more for housing and landlords tend to be pretty responsive to what their tenants are capable of, of affording. And so it can be the case that when consumers are making a little bit more, they are capable of shouldering bigger rent costs. As for that level of inflation, Ross Gerber, president of Gerber Kawasaki, expects that it's going to be a little while to see a true turnaround on inflation. The inflation numbers are showing that inflation is slowing, although obviously everybody wants it to just turn around and die. It doesn't work that way. So it does take time, and we're seeing the results of the Fed now trickling in. And month over month, the last two months, we've seen actually no inflation. So, you know, I think people have to think out into the future, let's say six months, what inflation numbers will look like, and they will be substantially lower than they are today. And the Fed's actions are affecting the economy negatively already, and that hasn't even trickled into the numbers yet. President Biden with a list of things he says need to be done to rein in big tech. That coming after a listening session, which actually didn't include the leaders of companies like Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, and Meta. So what should those companies be thinking about right now as it looks like the White House is going to move forward on this? Here's John Swartz of MarketWatch. I think what the tech companies are going to do, they're going to largely kind of ignore or try to skirt around anything that does become law. They're going to extend these cases um, in courts for years. And I think what they're going to also do is follow the path they've followed in Europe. You know, there are laws in Europe yeah. that protect data and high tech for the most part has not really been dinged in terms of any repercussions there so i think they're going to largely ignore what's out there and be willing to fight in court and extend this kind of trumpian type of strategy Biden administration setting aside subsidies as well for the domestic biotech industry christopher roland of the washington post says that the administration expects biotech to be a mainstay of the economy in the years ahead just look at what uh, people are being able to make things out of soy and all kinds of other things that where it's potentially more cost effective down the line than raising cattle. You know, with cattle being methane producers of their own, there could be economies uh, eventually taking place that could make this viable. That's kind of what the government wants to do by encouraging research and spending in this area to figure out how can we take these things that are small but hold great promise and turn them into things where they can actually turn into mainstays of our economy. On Friday, we could see a rail strike, which would have a significant slowdown in the moving of goods along the rails. Mike Steenhook, executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition, uh talk with us uh, about the growth of the or should say of the potential of a strike and the impact it would have on the agriculture industry we already have as we know supply chain challenges so this is something that is going to have a real negative impact on our industry on our economy and you know with global food shortages and, and a lot of the insecurity happening in the world right now there's a lot riding on the shoulders of the American farmer. We're confident that the American farmer can deliver in terms of producing the food that this world needs. But we've got to have a supply chain that is a, an effective partner in that. And that is certainly under question right now. In our look at sports and business, we're joined by Rob DeGisi, the founder of Iron Horse Marketing. And amongst the topics we talked about, the ratings for the first Sunday night football game for NBC, the Bucks and the Cowboys, and they were pretty good. 
when you feature the Cowboys, still America's team in the biggest draw, playing against Tom Brady, surprisingly coming back again, it brings in a lot of attention. 25 million viewers is a huge number. The average is about 17 million over the course of the year. Sunday Night Football, of course, is the pinnacle of all of that. They draw the biggest audience in games each week. The big issue, I think, coming up with uh, the NFL is this Thursday with the broadcast, the first Amazon broadcast of Thursday Night Football with the Chargers at the Chiefs. And we talk with Rod Sides of Deloitte about the uh, company's latest report around what holiday sales should look like. He expects consumers to have somewhat pre-pandemic shopping behaviors. We think the shopping behavior is going to return to be a lot closer to what we found pre-pandemic. Apparel always does really well in the holiday season. Some of the consumables may return. You know, we've saw things like, you know, food and, and alcoholic beverages really on the rise, probably in 17, 18, 19. That flattened out a little bit as we went through the pandemic. I think we could see those categories come roaring back. Travel also is going to be something that we think is going to come back. As folks are looking to spend perhaps the first holiday in three years together, that's going to take some of that share wallet away from maybe traditional purchases of product. Those are your highlights from the show. Don't forget you can listen to the entire show on replay tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific here on Sirius XM. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.